turn in your Bibles along with me to Titus chapter 3. This is Dad's Day. Dads are often ridiculed, oftentimes rightly so. Ridiculed for not wanting to stop and ask for directions. And that's a bit of an anachronism now, isn't it? We, we don't really need to stop and ask for directions. Thanks to GPS and the map apps on our phones, how did we ever get to where we wanted to go before? I remember taking trips with my family, and my dad had a whole stack of maps for different states in the glove box. And they would get pulled out and spread out, covering the entire front windshield. But not anymore. Just put your destination in your phone, and it will give you step-by-step directions for how to get where you want to go, including which lane to be in, which exits to take, and how long until you arrive at your destination. Pretty amazing, right? Well, in our text this morning, we are going to see every Christian's spiritual journey and the three necessary checkpoints or waypoints along the way. And we don't have to stop and ask for directions. God's Word gives us all the directions we need this morning. So look with me at Titus chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through the first part of verse 5 just to set the context a bit. The Apostle Paul, writing to Titus, pastoring these various churches in Crete, he says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, Deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Beloved, this is the Word of God. May it be our guide this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that you didn't leave us in our sins. But your kindness and the love you have for humanity appeared, made its appearance, showed itself, manifested itself in the person of Jesus Christ who paid the price and did all that was necessary in order to bring us to God, in order to make peace with God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Spirit, for awakening us on the inside, for giving us new life and washing us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this great gift of salvation, and we pray that we'd better understand it today. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as we walk through verses 3 and 4 in particular, we're going to see three vital checkpoints in every Christian spiritual journey. All of us have lived different lives. We've come from different places. 
We've had different experiences, different upbringings. We are employed in different jobs and we've had different education levels and all of that is true of all of us. And yet there are things that unite us as Christians, things that we share in common, common experiences by nature of the fact that we are Christians if you're a Christian here today. And what unites us are these three vital checkpoints, waypoints along our spiritual journey, things that we've all experienced, roads we've all had to travel in order to get to where we are today as Christians. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. Three vital checkpoints or waypoints in every Christian spiritual journey. The first one is this, is that we all share a dark past. We all come from the same basic background. The details are different, but the nature is the same. We see this in verse 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul begins verse 3 by taking us all back in time. Remember when, Paul says. This is our common story, our common history, our common backstory. Notice how he describes our former way of life. It was a way of sin. It was a life of sin. Friends, that's your story today. And that's my story. Verse 3 is a summary of humanity's lot outside of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as such, it's the story of our lives. B.C. Before Christ. This is our spiritual backstory. It's the common bond that unites all of humanity. That we were born in sin and that we're born into a life of sin. Psalm 51.5 Behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Even at conception we become sinners. From birth we're all sinners both by nature and by choice. And this sin nature and these sinful choices manifest themselves in our lives in a thousand different ways. Paul lists just a few of these sins here in summary fashion. In fact, he lists seven sins that characterized all our lives that made up our dark past. Now, these are not what we call and what is commonly referred to as the seven deadly sins. That so-called seven deadly sins were codified by Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century. But the reality is all sins are deadly. Even what seemed to us to be the most insignificant of sins is a deadly affront to a holy God. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. 
That's the just penalty, the just payment for sin. Death. There are no small sins. All sins are deadly sins. And so these seven sins serve as summaries of our life before Christ. Paul shares a number of these vice lists in his various letters. You can go through and see them. This particular list can be divided into three broad categories. The first category is sins relating to our darkened spiritual mind and intellect. The darkness of our spiritual state. Then we see the category of sins of enslavement. And then finally the sins of relationship. We're going to walk through each one of these seven sins and remember where we all came from. So with under this first point, we see seven sub-points, all right? I want you to be able to follow along with me. They're not going to be on the screen, but here are the seven sub-points that come under this darkness of our past. This is what our lives looked like. We were all foolish, first of all. We were all foolish. Paul begins by reminding Titus and those who would read his letter, including us, of their spiritual background of foolishness. Foolishness. And incidentally, Paul here is clearly lumping himself in with Titus and all Christians in sharing this common spiritual past. Paul was quick to own up to his own checkered spiritual past. In Galatians 1.13, Paul says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. We know Paul was a murderer. We know he rejoiced as he held the coats while Stephen was being stoned. 1 Timothy 1.15 Paul says this, he says, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. I'm the greatest sinner. That's what Paul said about himself. That's how he viewed himself. And there's a sense in which every Christian should view themselves that way. When you understand what sin is and how it's an affront to a holy God, you can't have any other view of your former life than that you were the chief of sinners, that you were the worst of the worst. Now, we all have a tendency to give ourselves a pass. We all have a tendency to say, I wasn't that bad. I was better than most. But that's a failure to take full account of your sins, to understand how grievous they are in the eyes of a holy God. The right view is to say, I was the worst of the worst. I was a real baddie. Say, well, I was saved when I was a child. How bad could I have been? Every sin was there in seed form. If given the right conditions and enough time, could have germinated. We were all foolish. So Paul would be the first to own up to his former spiritual foolishness. 
Foolishness, spiritually speaking here, means to exercise poor judgment, to behave senselessly. It speaks of a spiritual ignorance and of a darkness of mind, a spiritual blindness. Paul spoke more at length on this spiritual foolishness in Romans chapter 1, and I want you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 1. We're going to get to the book of Romans someday. I've never preached it. We're going to do it soon. Romans 1. Lord willing. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. They push down the truth in their unrighteousness. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident. And it's evident within them. It's self-evident. For God made it evident to them. God revealed himself to them. Everyone knows. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You can't say, I didn't know. God's revealed it to all. He's shown them enough through his creation, his power, his glory, his existence, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their what? Foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Beloved, we were right there with them. And if God had not intervened, we'd still be there. Suppressing the truth of God in our unrighteousness. Futile in our speculations. Continuing on in our foolish hearts. Back to Titus 3. We were foolish. Fools we were. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 says it this way. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles or unbelievers also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. This is a spiritual foolishness. It is a willful ignoring of the plain facts of the case. That there is a God and we are accountable to Him. Paul calls it foolishness. Theologians rightly talk about the noetic effects of sin. The word noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C, is from the Greek word nous, N-O-U-S, 
which means mind or intellect. The noetic effects of sin are the effects of, the, of sin and the fall upon the human mind, the human intellect, the human's ability to reason. It has been darkened. It has been warped. Our spiritual reasoning, our spiritual senses, our spiritual thinking have been negatively impacted by the fall of man into sin and the curse of sin that resulted. In fact, just a few chapters after Genesis 3 and Genesis 1, the creation of all things, the creation of mankind, the fall of man in Genesis 3, we read this sad summary of total depravity of human spiritual reasoning in Genesis 6, 5. It says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what we mean by total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that man is as bad as he could possibly be. We know that's not the case because of God's common grace, because of the restraining hand of the Holy Spirit, because of all kinds of of good things the Lord has embedded into his creation that help to preserve and restrict and restrain evil, including human government and the power of the sword to punish evildoers and to reward those who do right. All of these things help to restrict and restrain evil in the world. Total depravity doesn't mean that man is as bad as he possibly could be. Total depravity means that every part of man has been impacted by sin negatively, including our reasoning, our faculties, our thinking. So that when faced with the real facts of the case, all we can think is that I'm free of God's authority. That's our spiritual condition outside of Christ. That's where we've all come from, Christian. That's where you were. That's where I was. And that's where the world is. We were foolish. Secondly, we were all disobedient. We were all disobedient. Not only were we Foolish, but we were disobedience. Disobedience here refers to a rejection of God's clear commands. And therefore a rejection of God himself. It refers to our rebellion against God's authority as our creator and our lawgiver. Our foolish thinking resulted in our disobedient living. Does that make sense? Our spiritual foolishness shows itself in our rebellious living. Disobedience includes failing to do what God commands and failure to avoid doing what God forbids. It's sin. Disobedience is sin. Westminster Longer Catechism answers question 24 about sin this way. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. This is where we've all come from. A life of foolishness resulting in disobedience. Thirdly, we were all deceived. The word deceived here has the sense of being led astray, tricked. 
duped, deceived, and led down the wrong path, which of course reminds us of the truth of Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Praise God for that. We were deceived. We were duped. We were led down the primrose path, believing it would lead to a life of greater freedom, a life of greater joy, but it would only lead to our destruction. We were deceived. And those who are as yet without Christ, they too are deceived. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world, who's that? Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They've been deceived. They've been blinded. They've been tricked. They've been led down the wrong path. They've been given empty promises of well-being, of joy, of satisfaction. But they've been sold a bill of goods. And that's exactly where we were. In Revelation 12, 9, Satan is said to be the one who deceives the whole world. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Jesus said in John eight forty four that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He's been lying since the beginning. If his mouth is moving, he's lying. That's what he does. He's a con man. Set on taking as many people down the path that leads to destruction as possible. Second Timothy 3.13, Paul says, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Those who are deceived turn around and seek to deceive others. And say, come along with me. I found the path that leads to satisfaction. Second John 7 says this, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. At the heart and the goal of every deception is to take you away from Jesus Christ. To divert your attention from Jesus Christ. To place your hope in something other than Jesus Christ. To find your satisfaction in something other than Jesus Christ. That is the great deception of Satan. And that is the purpose behind all his deception. Friends, this is where we came from. This is our common backstory. We were deceived. We didn't know the truth. We were duped. Now this opening triad of vices, these three vices we've seen so far, 
shows us just how helpless and pitiful we were. We were foolish, we were disobedient, we were deceived. And it's truly a wonder that any of us made it out. Are you amazed? You see, the the world is not our enemy. Unbelievers are not the enemy. It can be in our polemical, political environment. It can be easy to view unbelievers as an enemy. They're not the enemy. Paul is sharing this as a reason to take pity on those who are yet outside, as a reason to humble yourself and realize where you've come from. You haven't always known this. You haven't always seen the light. You too were once in the darkness. You too were once foolish, deceived, and led astray. Fourthly, we were all enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Paul explains we were all slaves of sin. The world tells us that that freedom, true freedom, is found in following your desires. Boy, if that's not the message the culture is sending, I don't know what is. I mean, it's June, right? Pride month. Freedom is found in finding your true self. But it's a lie. Following our every desire will only lead us into greater and greater spiritual bondage. The reality is we're all born into this slavery, this bondage to sin, not freedom. We're not born free. We're born in bondage. That is what Paul is saying in Romans 6, 16 through 19. You can read that later. Outside of Christ, we are enslaved to sin. And Paul lists a few of our slave masters here. We were enslaved to lusts and pleasures. Now, this is a blanket statement that's intended to cover a broad range of sins and sinful desires. Basically, he's including every desire or experience that is forbidden by God or desires or experiences that are loved inordinately. (coughs) Excuse me. In other words, we can take a good thing and make it a sinful thing. Is that possible to do, church? We can take a good thing and make it a sinful thing. We can take anything that's good that God gives and intends for our good and make it an idol. We're pretty good at sinning. Sin is a terrible and cruel slave master. It's as though our lusts and our desires had put a ring through our noses and they were leading us around and we were helpless to say no. 
We were enslaved to sin. Enslaved to our lusts and our desires. But thankfully, God didn't leave us in our bondage to sin. Titus 2, 11 and 12. This is a parallel passage to this one. Just a chapter earlier. Titus 2, 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. When we came to Christ, God broke the bonds of sin so that we're no longer sin's slave. Sin can still have influence over us, but we are not required to obey its voice as our master. We have a new master. We're slaves of Christ. Slaves of righteousness. But friends, that is our backstory. That is where we've all come from. We've come from bondage. A life in bondage. Fifthly, We were all spending our lives in malice and envy. Our lives were characterized by malice and envy. Malice means that your life is turned toward evil, turned toward wickedness, turned toward depravity. That your heart is turned toward that which displeases God. The adjectival form of this word was used back in chapter 1 and verse 12 when the Cretans were described as evil beasts evil there same word same root malicious beasts evil beasts envy also characterized our lives envy is typical of the unbeliever's life When Paul describes the life of an unbeliever in another of these vice lists, he says the unbeliever is, in Romans 1.29, filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, and full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Envy is the root of all sinful dissatisfaction and discontent. Envy robs us of the ability to be able to rejoice in the good that another experiences. Instead, we're envious. We resent the fact that they have something that we don't. Boy, if social media doesn't produce envy, I don't know what does. Stokes envy. This is where we lived our lives, in the neighborhood of malice and envy. It's a tough neighborhood to grow up in. But that's where we came from. Back in the old neighborhood. We lived our lives in malice and envy. Six, we were all hated by others. We were hated by others. Maybe you were the king or queen of your homecoming court. You say you weren't hated by others. You were pretty popular in school. I guarantee people hated you. We were hated by others. It's because it's the result of all this envy and malice. (laughs) 
Envy and malice reside in the human heart and it will give expression when it comes in contact with others. And it gives expression in the form of hate. Literally, it says here, being hated. We were despicable, the Legacy Standard Bible says. We were despised by those who viewed us with evil, malice, and envy. Of course we were hated. The world is full of hatred. We're still hated. That hasn't changed. The world is full of hatred because the world is full of sinners who are full of malice and envy. Seventh, we were all hateful of others. Not only were we hated by others, but we were hateful of others. The same sinfulness that had filled their hearts with malice and envy also filled our hearts with malice and envy and gave expression to hatred of others. You see, ever since sin has come into the world, there has been envy and malice and hatred. Isn't that true? This conflict and enmity is a result of the fall of mankind into sin. Genesis 3.15, God says, I'm going to put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. There's going to be this cosmic conflict. There's going to be hatred. And very soon after this fall of man into sin and the curse that came with it and the enmity that was promised, very soon after all of this, Cain, in a fit of envy and rage, murdered his own brother. Abel. And the book of Genesis is largely a chronicling of mankind's hatred for their fellow man, even their own family members, Joseph and his brothers. Enmity and hatred is just part of living in a fallen and broken world. But we've been called to a life that's radically different from that, right? As Christians, we're on a new path. We're in a new neighborhood. We've got new hearts. Titus 3.2, remind them to malign no one, to be peaceable and gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's the life we're called to live now. That's the light we live in. Compared to the darkness from whence we came. As Christians, we all share a common backstory, a backstory of sin and depravity which should humble us, which should give us compassion and break our hearts for those who are still in the darkness. They can't see, they've been duped, they're believing the lie. We've been there. We know what it's like to be spiritually blind. 
and wandering down the wrong path that leads to judgment. Second waypoint is that we've benefited from a decisive saving moment. Hallelujah. This comes in verse 4. Are we keeping track here? It's perfect. Great job back there. We benefited from a decisive saving moment. Look at verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Verse 4 begins with a strong contrast. But when. The conjunction but. I learned everything I know about grammar from Saturday morning cartoons. Conjunction, junction. What's your function? Thank you. This is a conjunction. It is a contrasting conjunction, but comparing two things, making a contrast between them, it signals a drastic change in circumstances. Things didn't stay the same way they had always been. Hallelujah. Something has happened. The contrast is between how we once were and what has happened now to change things. God didn't leave us in our sin. He didn't leave us in our foolishness. He didn't leave us in our disobedience and our enslavement to sin. He didn't leave us in our malice and envy and hatred. God has acted decisively in order to rescue us from our sin and the destruction that was quickly headed our way. We were lost, hopeless, headed for hell. But God, aren't you grateful for the truth of but God? That, of course, is from Ephesians 2, 1 to 6. But God, right? Turn with me quickly. Ephesians 2. It's one of the great passages in all of Scripture. That great pivot point in verse 4, as you're going to see. Ephesians 2, 1. Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is the old neighborhood. This is where we all grew up. This is our common backstory. This is where we came from. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, but God. But 
God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a reversal of fortunes. And at the center of it all is but God. But God, or here in our text, but when? But when? Back to Titus 3. But when the blessed truth that is to be found in a contrasting conjunction. Who knew? Grammar was so important. But when God speaks to us by way of human language, grammar is very important. But God, but when? The word but has got to be one of the sweetest words in all the scriptures. But God, but when? On these divine hinges, the very door of eternity swings. Were it not for God's gracious, merciful, kind, and loving intervention we would still be in the old neighborhood. We'd still be living the old life. We'd still be believing the old lies. We'd still be headed for destruction. But God, but when? What good news this is, beloved. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared... We've seen the word appeared before back in chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The word appeared, the word appeared both in chapter 2 and verse 11. And here in 3, 4 means to become manifest for all to see. It's that word from which we get our English word epiphany. It's like the lights came on and the darkness was pushed out. God's grace, His kindness, and His love for mankind appeared and became gloriously visible. God's grace, His kindness, His love are not merely theological concepts divorced from real life, separated from space and time. God's grace, kindness, and love are not merely ideological concepts with no practical function. They are not mere esoteric notions. God's grace, kindness, and love are practical They appear. They are made manifest for all to see. They make their appearance and they go to work for us. His grace, kindness, and love took on flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Rescued us from our sins, delivered us from our guilt, and saved us from God's just wrath. Kindness refers to God's goodness, relates to God's generosity, His patience. He's not dealt with us as our sins deserved, but instead has shown us kindness by giving us His Son. Not only was God's grace and kindness brought to light and made manifest in Jesus, but also His love. Love here is not the word we would expect, agape. That 
special God kind of love, self-sacrificial love, although God loves us with that kind of love. It's a different word, though. It's a compound Greek word, philanthropia, from philos, meaning love, and anthropos, meaning mankind or human beings or people. Love for people. God's love for people. God's love for all people. It's the same kind of love we read of in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. You say, well, that's only the Christians in the world, right? No, it's the world. God loved the world and sent his son. Same here. God's love for mankind sent his son into the world. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, what happened? First part of verse 5, he saved us. Hallelujah. He saved us. We were in a mess. Remind yourself of the reality of the neighborhood you came from. Your backstory. Verse 3. He saved you. He saved you from all that. He saved you out of all that. He saved you from the consequences of all that. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Beloved, every true Christian has had this blessed experience of going from darkness to light, from death to life, from guilt to forgiveness. And this common checkpoint is at the cross of Jesus. Oh, how He loves you and me. Hmm. Thirdly and finally, and this will go quick. We experienced a drastic change. That's the final checkpoint. All true Christians experience a drastic change. Paul says in verse 3, we also once were. This is where we came from. This is our common backstory. And Paul is using here a common conversion formula. Formerly, but now. Formerly you were like this, but now things are different. It's because of the appearing of the kindness and love of our Savior God that has brought about this drastic change. And as we'll see next week, Lord willing, specifically, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit causing us to be born again, renewed from the inside out. So that we're no longer living our lives in verse 3. We're living our lives in verses 1 and 2. This is now the direction of our lives. Not the perfection of our lives, but the direction of our lives is in verses 1 and 2. Not in verse 3. And it's all because of verse 4. Savvy? This is true of every Christian's experience. There is a change that takes place because we've been born again and that change begins to work itself from the inside out. We become new creations in Jesus Christ. We take on the Holy Spirit inside of us 
And he begins his work of transforming. It's a progressive work to be sure. It doesn't happen overnight. And we continue to struggle and we continue to strive against sin and our old habits and our old ways of thinking and living. And yet that work is in us and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so there's a change. And every Christian experiences this. I wonder this morning, have you experienced a change? Are you different than you used to be? Are you living more now in the direction of verses 1 and 2? Or would you say that your life is more characteristic of verse 3? The old neighborhood. The old ways of thinking and living and acting. Believing the old lies. Friend, it doesn't have to stay that way. Jesus Christ has come, but God, but when the kindness of God and the love of God for mankind appeared in Jesus Christ, it changed everything. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for being a great Savior, for not leaving us in our sin. Help us to have compassion and love for the lost, concern for their situation. Help us plead with them that they might turn to Christ and be saved. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.